The Institute of Directors professional development programmes equip learners with the knowledge, skills and mindset to be enterprising and innovative, enabling organisations to become more productive and competitive. The IOD's programmes ensure directors develop an awareness of their interpersonal skills, legal and business knowledge, financial acumen, ethical questioning, decision-making abilities and the highest standards of professional conduct. The IOD is the only institute in the world to offer internationally recognised qualifications designed by directors for directors under Royal Charter. For more information on IOD training, visit iod.com today. Welcome to the Institute of Directors Business Podcast, a podcast where we interview directors from all over Scotland about their careers and business. I'm your host, Marlene Lowe, director and founder of Titchborne Promotions and long-term IOD member. Mike Robinson has a career that I personally find incredibly interesting. His determination to make a difference and facilitate change is awe-inspiring. He's been Chief Executive of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society for the past 12 years and volunteered extensively throughout his career. Really hope you enjoy this one. I have had a sort of twin track career, but one of them is paid and one of them isn't. Um, Okay. (laughs) And and there's actually, I, I think they're very distinct things but they've started to coalesce in my later years um, in a way that I hadn't entirely envisaged when I was younger but um, actually my first my first role uh, proper role out of university was with Unilever um, which is not an obvious route for um, somebody with environmental uh, concerns but um, <laughs> it was a really helpful uh, exercise actually it was it was a good thing yeah it taught me that the world is not black and white. And I think I probably did think it was quite black and white when I was ah, younger. Okay. Um, so it was a really important learning curve, actually. Um, mm. Just about being out in the real world and forced to do things I didn't really want to do. Um, and yeah, just forced me to, I think, grow up in lots of different ways and and see the world more, more broadly. Yeah. So actually, I... Although I, um, I mean, I stayed there for a wee while, but I was always a little bit um, of a sort of round peg in a square hole. Mm-hmm. Um, but whilst I was with Unilever, I did um, take a career break and went on Operation Rally, Rally International, okay. um, which was an expedition to Borneo, in my case, um, three months in the, in the Borneo rainforest. Wow. Wow. Um, I was already interested in the environment, but I, that really, really reinforced my interest and my concerns. And, and actually, whilst I was in Borneo, I made friends with one of the guides who was, uh, he was a Pup Penan, which is a nomadic tribe in Borneo. Mm-hmm. And I sort of promised that when I came home, I would try to do everything I could to help um, protect the rainforest for him. Wow. Uh, and that's really what sort of launched me in a slightly different direction, I suppose. I think it was one I was always sympathetic to. Yeah. Um, 
but I, I probably didn't really realize that you could actually work in that area. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so it began as very much a voluntary thing. And that got me involved in a charity called Survival International, which is based in London, mm-hmm. uh, looking at tribal rights. So I ended up um, hosting a Yanomabe tribal chieftain and Bagyali pygmies and various others and eventually ended up on the board of that charity for the best part of a decade. Wow. So that sort of launched my voluntary career if yeah. you like. Um, and with Rally, I was running weekends of volunteering with, you know, up to sort of 30, 20 year olds. So we'd all go away in our 20s for a long weekend and do voluntary mm. work. And, um, and that also sort of got me into practical land management and conservation as well. So the, so the voluntary side was really important. Um, the Unilever side was quite funny because mm. um, not long after I'd left, and I was only in my sort of late 20s when I left Unilever to join the RSPB. Yeah. Um, and I probably wouldn't have gone to the RSPB if I hadn't been doing volunteering work on one of the reserves up north. Okay. Um, but I met up with my Unilever colleagues for dinner in Amsterdam. Mm. And, um, and basically they all thought I'd retired. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a good age and to I retire thought, at. <laughs> well, yes, I thought it was a tad generous. Um, I, I mean, I literally was, I think, 27 or something, 26, 27, something like that. And um, so, yes, one, no, I really haven't retired. Um, <laughs> and they also all assumed that I was instantly a bird watcher, which I never have been. Um, yeah. Um, but I, it was quite funny, actually, during the course of the, of the dinner, um, I, they actually became to sort of have a, a, ch- a changed perspective, a changed respect, really, I think, for what I've done. Mm. Because we were describing what we did, and we all basically did a very similar thing, um, which was largely about promoting and selling and, and encouraging people to do a thing you wanted them to do. In their case, mm-hmm. buy more chemicals, and in my case, join a charity and fund conservation work. Yeah. Um, but the difference was that they had hundred thousand pounds worth of budget and I had nothing <laughs> so, um, and that and actually that was a really interesting moment because I realized that I was much happier where I was because it you, you're forced to be creative yeah um, when you don't have resources anybody who's run a small business or a charity will entirely relate to that that mm-hmm. you you can't pay your way through it you can't buy your way through it so you have to you have to find another way and and actually I think that you know when you've got a good idea you have to have a belief that it is a good idea you mm. sort of know when you've got a good idea and actually money's not not the be all or end all there's, there's, there's other ways of making it happen there's other ways to deliver it um, a lot of it is about persuading people around you that it's also a good idea yeah if you can't persuade anyone then you're probably um, a nutter <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, you know what I mean. If you can, it's all about persuading people and being creative. You know, it's forced me to just constantly problem solve. Yeah, um, I suppose when you're passionate about it as well, it's people feed into that passion and they they want to be swept up in that passion and feel what you feel for what you're doing. And it sounds like since you went into that, you have followed your passions, and that that becomes a very strong sales driver I suppose I think that's true and I, I think I'm very fortunate to be able to pursue my passions in that way mm. um, 
so yeah, I think it's a very fortunate position in a sense. Um, it does make you a workaholic because <laughs> you can never do enough, you know, if no. you really care about it. So, so yeah. does the old adage of um, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life, do you feel like you kind of <laughs> have that now <laughs> or have since late 20s? Yeah, as far as it goes, yes. There's always, um, in every role, there are things that you have to do and not all of them yeah. are deeply exciting or meaningful or feel as fulfilling as they might, but they have to be done. And I think, so actually, I think, the, yeah, the problem I've had is the more I've done, the more I've wanted to do. And, mm. and then, and, and the more ambitious I've tried to be for, for the, the subjects I'm involved in. So why don't we start back at the beginning then? And then I'd like to like you for, I would like for you to take us through that journey. But what I'd really like to know is, is why did you choose business and marketing? Um, well, I guess I, at the time, it sort of combined things I was interested in or good at. Um, so it brought together, I mean, I've, you know, it's been, I think it's a combination of things. Yes, it's brought together, sounds a bit silly, but it brought together things like maths, it brought together things like English, written English. Mm -hmm. it, I did economics as well. Um, and so it brought together an element of that. Um, I guess I felt that, I think I felt two things. One is I felt that um, it just helped, you know, build on certain skills that I sort of felt I had. Mm. But I also, um, I guess I felt I also wanted to, um, it might, this might be retrospective because it was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but there was an element in there, I think, of um, feeling that I would, I wanted to learn how to, push the things I cared about and mm -hmm. and basically make them successful yeah um, so I just thought it was a useful skill set in that sense excellent so going from Unilever to RSPB um, as you mentioned one is quite corporate big the other a charity what was one of the hardest shifts for you in changing mindset if anything um, at all yeah, I guess because I because I think I said I was sort of I felt you know a bit like a um, square peg in a round hole in mm. Unilever. There was a lots of good things about Unilever, um, but I I felt like I'd sort of come home a bit yeah. more. Um, so I was more comfortable in my own skin. Mm. So that was actually made it a lot easier. Um, I guess because I cared so much, I immediately felt inadequate in everything that I did <laughs> um, so I really had to work I really really I really did just I get basically swapped really I just learned everything I could yeah um, and that you know I guess I think because I cared about it so much and because I'd seen other things and and also still felt an obligation uh, partly to this guy Felix that I'd met in Borneo. Um, I sort of hit the ground running. I was really, really determined to make it work. So I probably just brought a lot, I brought a lot of energy to the role, I think. Mm. Um, and just, and, and every day was a learning day. I was very open to learning and understanding that I needed to know more about the subjects mm -hmm. and, and the process and what was expected. 
I think what I found difficult in with Unilever there was a very clear understanding of what my job was. Yeah. If, if I'm honest with the the role with RHPB, there was absolutely no <laughs> real <laughs> idea. Um, and I don't mean in myself, I mean in terms of sort of guidance and instruction. So, yeah. Um, so when I came in, it was a new role. It needed mm-hmm. to work itself out. I needed to work out what the role was and then do it. Not, yeah. um, not just come into an, an understood position and help and deliver. Mm-hmm. So it just started from a different place. And, and actually, in a way, because of that, I think it sort of developed an appetite in me to, to keep pushing and, and sort of think and, and always reviewing and thinking about what it is that I should actually be doing. Yeah. Um, and so actually once I started to get into my stride with that role, and it probably took two years to properly feel that I understood the role and, and was actually delivering against it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it then went to a phase where actually I was then, I was then helping others in, that, in these sorts of roles that were starting to be appointed around the UK. And I was doing more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then made me hungry to keep doing the next thing. So I, I would, you know, what used to take me a week, I could do in three days. <laughs> nice. So I then start, so then I'd start scheming for the other two about exciting <laughs> projects I could bring forwards. Um, and so that was sort of what I did, you know. And, um, and actually, I'm a big fan of these sort of side of the desk projects because they're they often they capture you they're, they're what has kept me fresh in all the roles that I've done I've not moved around a huge amount in terms of my work mm-hmm. um, but I've always managed to carve out a little bit of freedom in the role yeah to create something else and yeah. um, and so I was able to do that within that role partly because I understood the role so much better than anybody else mm. but also I'd sort of built it up to the point where it was actually really reasonably successful and so I could um I could have gone and lied down I suppose but I didn't think to do that <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I just kept coming up with little things that I could do and and you know an extra thing and an extra thing and uh, and so the biggest of these extra projects you know once you do one you're like oh maybe I could do something else you know yeah. so you push and push and push and so the biggest project I took on at RSPB which was just really a sort of hobby project um was one year um we had a christmas catalog um Mm -hmm. which had done very well and the biggest selling item was a fluffy beatrix potter pajama case Ooh, that does sound nice (laughs) well i didn't think so um (laughs) (laughs) it was about 40 quid or something and i thought my god people have got money to burn and um (laughs) So I thought I needed to come up with something that was actually worth buying. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so it took me three years, but it, it was a, but on the side of the desk, I built a project which was to install um, solar energy on people's homes. Mm. Um, doesn't sound like a three-year project, but it, I, had to, I had to set up. I, I persuaded the co-op bank to introduce a very low-interest solar loan, mm-hmm. um, lobbied UK government to introduce a a domestic householder grant, um, persuaded uh, Scottish and Southern to um, charge uh, the same price they paid you if you created your own electricity. Mm -hmm. And I had to persuade an installer to actually 
do in, install the things in the first place because some of them are electric systems and some of them are hot water systems. Yeah. And one was fitted by an electrician and one was fitted by a plumber. So there's very few companies could fit both. Mm. Um, and I managed to get one on a UK basis that could install both. Wow. So it took three years to put all of this together. Um, and it was quite a big scheme. And then I sat down with um, a guy from <laughs> a large solar company, I won't name him. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, there's two things he said that I thought were very funny. The first was he said, we don't sell many solar panels in the UK. And I said, all right, okay. I, I said, why do you think that is? And he said, I don't know. He said, I honestly don't know. And I said, well, have you yeah. got any literature? And he said, yes, we do. And he gave me all this literature and it was all in German. <laughs> and I said, um, I did say, um, do you have any in English? And he said, well, no, we haven't bothered printing any in English. And, and you're like, could that be partly why nobody's bought any? Um, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, the conversation proceeded and he said, if you sell um, 10 solar panels across yeah. the UK, I'll give you my shirt. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought that was somewhat disappointing, although it was probably a good thing that I had this conversation because I was hoping for 5% of UK households. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was a little carried away with my uh, optimism. Um, and uh, But then I thought he was a tad pessimistic. So, uh, yeah, it was an interesting exercise and very sobering, actually, to have that conversation. But, uh, but that was one of the... We, that, was, that was probably the main project I got off the ground, completely just for fun. So um, how far did you get... Did you get his shirt to me? We got over a thousand people. Wow. So that's fantastic. So yeah, that was a good, it was, it worked really well in the end. So yeah. yeah. So where did you go after RSPB? So work wise, I moved to the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. So um, I became director of development there. Um, there was a lot of things that needed to be done at the botanics, but the most obvious um, for anyone who knows Edinburgh is there was a that there was no building on the west side of the garden, mm -hmm. and we felt that it needed a, a reception and interpretation centre. You know, if you if you had built a botanic garden in the twentieth century, you would have fit, fitted them automatically, but because it was mm -hmm. so old, they weren't there. Um, so how did we actually go about that? What did that look like? How do we fund it? What did it need to contain? All that sort of thing. So um, my main project was the John, what's now called the John Hope Gateway. Yeah. So. Lovely building. Love going to the it botanics. Yeah. So carry yeah, on with the, building. carry on with the career track and then let, we can backtrack to volunteer positions. A volunteer one, yes. <laughs> well, that, I mean, um, so the botanics was, yeah, another, another huge learning curve. I mean, I, I still think I learn every day. Mm. Um, and I guess it's important, I guess, that I remain open to that. But I quite enjoy it as well. Um, yeah. Botanics, yeah. I, I didn't know a huge amount about plants. Um, that wasn't really the point. I'm a sort of philosophical conservationist, really. I believe in the bigger picture thing. Mm. Um, it was quite funny. My One of my first weeks in the job, I just because of my volunteering, I'd been going all around Scotland and Ireland, um, ripping out Ponticum rhododendron. Um, <laughs> and then I came to the Botanics and I had to take an American, uh, sorry, an Australian um, politician around the garden. Um, but as soon as I got to the rhododendrons, I had nothing to say other than, well, I normally rip these out and set a light to them, but apparently we grow them here, you know. And so, 
it wasn't really the tour I think they were looking for. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a great, it was a great sort of experience. And, um, and again, took me into lots and lots of different areas, um, partly because of some of the other things I was doing. We sort of really, really raised the political profile of the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, it became the sort of must-have launch place for um, anything vaguely environmental coming out of Scottish government. So yeah, um, and that really helped sort of cement its um, it, its profile in a number of different ways, which has actually I think helped mm. deliver funding for the garden ever since. Actually, yeah. So again, sort of big picture. You know, it's not just about the thing that's right in front of you. It's about looking at the whole of a problem looking at it in the round and realizing that some of the fortunes of the garden were in direct fundraising and Mm. direct project development but some of it actually was in building and developing networks raising political and public profile raising understanding you know there's all those sorts of things yeah um so so yeah a lot of work for the sort of directly with the public and yeah, and also I, I quite a lot of philanthropy, a lot of work with philanthropy too. So a lot of senior managers and and sort of wealthy individuals that were connected to the garden that we would um, run events for and involve in the work and things. So yeah, interesting experience all around. That does sound really cool, actually. <laughs> so why did you leave the gardens to move on to your next enterprise? Um, <laughs> New opportunities. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the sort of polite way of saying. It. No, I mean, there's not. A, it's not that I have anything to hide, and it's not. It's not a bad reason, but it might sound odd. Is that I guess I realised that um, in both of my the previous roles, I would often I do come up with ideas all the time. I'm never ever shy of ideas, and but what I'd have to do is I'd have to sit down and persuade my boss that this was a good idea, and then I would eventually be allowed to go and make it happen yeah and it just came a point where i thought it'd be quicker to cut out the middleman really <laughs> um, <laughs> you know i just wanted to, i wanted to just have an opportunity to yeah just be my own not really my own boss you've always got people that you report to and you yeah you report into but i i was really keen to see what i could do if i had even more freedom to move things forward more quickly mm-hmm. and just sort of challenge myself in that sense um and this opportunity came along with the, the scottish geographical society yeah so so you've been with them since 2008 yes and have you come up with just as many crazy if not more ideas in that time frame i take it <laughs> I'd like to think a lot more crazy ideas in that time frame. Um, it's, been a busy, it's been a busy time. I mean, we've, when I took over, we were based in Glasgow. Um, we were struggling a bit. It's a long, it's a very traditional organisation, very long standing. It's not traditional, it's just old. Um, we're 134 years old. Wow. Um, so, in fact, 136, I must correct that. Um, so we've been around a long time and it was a very interesting challenge. It was sort of, it slightly run into um, the buffers a bit. It was a little bit moribund is, is probably a word um, mm-hmm. you might apply to it. It was just a little bit unsure of its modern purpose. It, it mm. got stuck in its historical 
um, sort of splendor and, and slightly lost its way. It didn't have a lot of money. It was un, had an uncertain future. We were based in Glasgow. Um, well, our constitution was out of date. Our management structures were out of date. Organizational structure was wrong. Um, we had, when I started, we had a board, effective board of 37. Yeah. We had 15 committees. Um, and the first five I went to didn't know what they were there for. So wow. it really required a sort of root and branch reimagining of what was, what, what could be done, what needed to be done. Um, new constitution, we had to register differently because it's so old mm. as a charity. It's one of the first charities in Scotland, probably. It didn't, re it didn't register as a charity because it was sort of, in, in the 1880s, if you got given royal status, that was your charitable mm. status. Yeah. So it, it wasn't properly constituted. Um, a, a board of 37 doesn't work. Um, so that needed to be changed. I cut the committees from 15 down to four. Mm. Um, introduced some new medals. We have our own medals program, yeah. um, which has been around for a long time, but we didn't have a couple of the medals I felt that we should have had. I moved the office from Glasgow to Perth. Um, we acquired our office. We raised a million mm. pounds to do up the Fermi's house, which is the oldest house in Perth, which is now a visitor center and an exhibition place, but also houses our collection. Mm -hmm. We have about 250,000 maps and artifacts from various explorers and, you know, scientists and educators of the last 150 years. Wow. So, um, you know, we were set up by David Livingston's eldest daughter. Um, the Shackleton did my job in 1904, 1905. Yeah. So the history is amazing. Yeah, but, definitely. But what do you do with it all? And we're not a historical society. And so the single biggest shift was to recognize that the history is, is really impressive. I mean, it is really mm. impressive. But all it is, is that it proved that, that Scotland and we were involved in things that mattered at the mm. time. Yeah. And that doesn't matter if it was, you know, exploration of Africa and the, and the Arctic and the Antarctic. It doesn't matter if it was, um, you know, a resource uh, acquisition or trading and industry all around the world it doesn't matter if it was mountaineering you know it's the connections that we have with you know with people like Hillary climbing Everest and Neil Armstrong and I mean you know all of these people have had connections with the society over the years yeah and what I took from that is that what we were always involved in things that mattered mm. so what matters now and therefore what should we be involved in <laughs> Um, and really the evidence to get people to get engaged with us is that, well, look who's been involved with us in the past. Yeah. So you should take us seriously. Yeah. So we've, I've, you know, what's actually been really interesting. Um, so I, I introduced a magazine back in 2009, um, which we're now about to produce our 50th copy of. Um, wow. It's a quarterly, but we've had, some really interesting people write for that. And so one of the things I've always, I'm always ambitious and passionate for the thing that I'm doing. And I think this is your point about mm. maybe not going to work anymore. Um, but because of that, I'm not really personally particularly ambitious, but, but I am really ambitious for the society. So yeah. we were doing a magazine on well-being and alternative economic indicators, which you'll mm -hmm. understand because of my background in economics. <laughs> um, 
but very much about that whole principle of getting away from GDP as a measure because it's so out of date and, mm. um, and so narrow. And the only person I could find who regularly was quoted on alternative issues like well-being uh, was the Dalai Lama. So, so I wrote to the Dalai <laughs> Lama and asked him if he'd write for the magazine. And um, much to my amusement, he did. Wow. Um, and so... <laughs> And that's really sort of set the precedent. So we've had, we've had presidents, you know, not the American one, but we've had presidents write for the <laughs> magazine. We've had senators. We've had, you know, people like Mary Robinson, Kofi Annan, mm. um, all sorts of people now write for the magazine, engage with us on yeah. a number of different levels, come and have, med you know, we've given medals to some really significant global figures. Um, last year we made Mark Carney, the, mm -hmm. um, a, a fellow, um, of the society and got them to record a video for a project that we're working on. Um, so it's just that sense of using, you know, we've used the history to justify the present, if you like. Yeah. But the bit I'm most interested in is, is very much the future. It's about that's what we're here for. It's to what I'd like to think that touches everything that I do is it's about it's about choice in life. It's about not simply reacting to where we happen to be but building yeah. what we'd like I, I, a, a silly example but it's one i've used before is that um actually a few years ago i was in a, a government meeting about transport mm -hmm. and there was a comment that there would be 30 percent more road traffic over the next 10 to 15 years yeah now that the general sense in the room was well we need to build more roads yeah but but to me driving was already awful and <laughs> there were far too many there's far too many cars out there there's huge amounts of congestion and wasted time and wasted money and pollution yep and a third <laughs> could you honestly imagine a third again on no. top of what we've got now no so to me it was a signal <laughs> to do something differently it wasn't a signal to go build more roads yeah and another example yeah. another obvious example it was a and this is the joy of my current job is I just get to be involved in so many things <laughs> because everything's geographical. Um, but in town centre regeneration, I was at a conference in Stirling and the opening gambit to the conference was that retail is no longer the sole, the sole purpose of a town centre if you're going to be successful. Yeah. You're not going to save town centres by just having shopping. Yeah. And I was the only person in the conference that wasn't a retailer. So why wow. aren't you asking? Why aren't you asking people that aren't in retail to help solve the problem? Yeah, absolutely. And and so, those are just a couple of silly examples. But I, but I guess the way I would sort of describe this need for this, but also the way of thinking, is to to sort of imagine yourself in twenty or thirty years' time, looking at the thing you've built. And are you proud of it or are you embarrassed by it? Mm. Um, you know, I think housing is a good example. We're not, we're just not very far-sighted with housing. We still sometimes building on floodplains. They're often very unimaginative. They're not particularly energy efficient. Mm. Um, they're better than they once were, but that's not saying a huge amount. Yeah. Um, we could do so much better. And I just, I want us to build with pride. I want us to you know what do you want it to look like what would you want to live in yeah and then let's go build it 
not yeah not just twiddle with where we are now and what we can get away with i'm always quite shocked at seeing how many new houses are being built when we've got old ones that could be refurbished or all built like factories or churches that could be redone into apartment blocks or repurposing what we've already got i agree and i think i think one of the things that's um a shame in a way is that but i think i've sort of this comes back to what i was saying about working in a charity i think that um i'm inspired by having to innovate um yeah you know it can be frustrating don't get me wrong because sometimes you wish you could just get on with it um mm. but but actually i think i think when we're talking to younger generations the in the the sort of op the optimism the opportunity is in is in that change is in what that mm. change could be and what they want to see from that and it's not that they know all the answers because they don't they're still quite young but they have to have opportunity and optimism they've got to have a sense of what could be and what could be better yeah um i think everything could be better i'm, I'm just hard to please um <laughs> So Eternal I don't optimist. think so. Yeah, absolutely, I don't think saying something could be better is is a, is actually a criticism. It's uh, it's just a statement of the obvious in my head. Yeah. And but I think that there is, and and particularly with some of the sort of crises that we have around us at the moment, you've got to give young people that optimism, and the optimism mm -hmm. is in solving this stuff. Yeah. It's in doing it differently. We have to do it differently because we've pursued a very unsustainable path in part by accident um not so much recently i don't think you can claim accident because we've known better mm. but we haven't worked it out yet and for me that's actually there's something to get your teeth into there there's something quite exciting about that mm. um it's not to dismiss the fact that it's it's some of it could be quite awful if we don't start it out yeah but it is that sense that there is there's stuff that needs to be done it's real everything is on the table everything's yeah. on the table you know i've been talking about gdp alternatives for 20 years mm. 20 years ago there were hardly anybody talking about it yeah. even though simon kuznets who invented gdp thought it was rubbish in 1957 but <laughs> um but nobody's really spoken about it much and but it has begun to sort of drip into conversations it's much more well understood now it hasn't really properly been adopted yet mm. but but there's much, much more of an awareness of it. Nobody blinks when you talk about well-being indicators and other things now. Yeah. So that has yeah. begun to shift. And therefore, even the economic model, which we're basing so much of our society on, mm. is actually up for grabs. The yeah. way that we do business is up for grabs. The things that we build are up for grabs. The sense of ownership or what or not, you know, I mean, there's companies now that rent you jeans and carpets. Mm. Um, the whole idea of circular economy, these are all... They, they seemed really nebulous and, and um, remote 15 mm. years ago, but they're now, these things are now talked about all the time in the boardroom. And I think yeah. that's, that's the optimism that the next generation should be latching onto. It's get involved in the solutions and help make them happen. There's, that's where your optimism is. That's where you, and that's where your excitement is. That's where mm. you can apply yourself in new ways, interesting ways and make good stuff happen. So. So if we look at that mentality that you've just described there as a curve of sorts, where, where, we're, where we could get to a stage where the majority of people have latched onto that and want to make a change, and it's not just because we're being told to, et cetera. 
Where do you think we are along that curve of actually achieving that? Do you mean how willing are people now to, to embrace change? Is that what you mean? Or? Embrace, not only embrace it, but what you're mentioning there about being innovative without actually making changes. So I think that there's a difference between embracing the concepts and saying, yes, we need to change versus the majority of society actually going, all right, let's actually change, let's think up solutions. So instead of having that small minority like yourself that are really passionate, go for it, their whole lives are all about it, to actually as a society we become like that. So um, I think where we've got to is that the narrative has at last begun to shift. Mm -hmm. It has taken a painfully long time for that to happen. Um, I mean, the first fairly um, definite confirmation of climate change was in 1979. Mm -hmm. And uh, here we are still having conversations about whether or not we're going to act and what we're going to do about it. Yeah. Um, there's no question that the, that the narrative has shifted. I think it particularly shifted in the last two years. Um, I think every organization has absolutely woken up to not just, as you say, a sort of knowledge of, of that it's there, but an absolute realization that they need to be taking it more seriously and, and are more involved and are actually helping, helping deliver solutions against it. Yeah. That isn't still universal. I am well aware there are still individuals and organizations that don't especially see the relevance to what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But I think there's more of a sense of responsibility and culpability held by a lot of people throughout organizations, throughout society. Mm. I think um, there's a couple of issues in there. I think the first is that people actually don't genuinely understand it very well. Mm -hmm. So there's a lack of knowledge about this, this critical issue. Yeah. Um, and and actually, I don't necessarily mean in terms of why it's happening and how awful it might be. Mm. I mean in terms of what we can what we can actually do about it. Yeah. So um, I genuinely believe that that is a, a need, mm -hmm. and you won't be surprised to know that I think that's a need because for the last <laughs> four years, I've been developing with the with the institute of directors, with um, the Edinburgh Centre for Carbon Innovation at mm -hmm. Edinburgh University, and with the management school at Stirling University. A, an online qualification for managers yeah. in climate solutions. Yeah. So tell us about that. And How can people get involved? Yeah, so that, that's there to address that need. So, yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I, I interrupted you. Um, how can people get involved in that? So is, is it up and running? Can people just sign up? Where can they go to? Yep, it's up and running. Um, it's been up and running <laughs> since the beginning of the year. Yeah. We've, um, we completed the pilots in uh, January, February. So we had a number of companies and individuals on that. Um, it's now out there in the public domain. Um, it's on our website. It's, um, and, and we also have a climate solutions um, network website as well. Mm -hmm. but, if, but it's on our website. Um, at the moment, we are working with Scottish Government. They're putting 100 senior civil servants on the course. Wow. Um, we are also talking about it being made um, mandatory or not, not mandatory, but available for every MSP in the Scottish Parliament. And, we're, and there's a number of companies and organisations putting people on it as we speak. So, mm. um, yeah, that's, it's, it's out there. It's, it's being adopted and I hope it will get very broad take up.
Yeah. Um, yeah. We're also hoping to produce a shorter version that's made available to students at university um, because again with the massive UN climate conference coming to Glasgow next year yeah. um, in yeah. theory then um, we actually realised that an, a short course available for students uh, means that every single student in every Scottish university could have actually sat that course before next November. Yeah. So yeah. it just we we're trying to help to meet that need that there's a shortage of understanding, particularly about the solutions. So here's a course, what you need to know about science, what you need to know about the policy, and here's the key sort of solutions frameworks. Mm. Now, how are you gonna help? And that is the course in a nutshell. Yeah. So who do you think has the best, how do I phrase this? Around responsibility, obviously all of us have a responsibility to make a change, to learn, to take it forward. But who do you think is best placed to actually drive it and, and lead by example? It's <laughs> um, a good question. I'll just let this phone get picked up by somebody. There we go. Um, <laughs> it does sound evasive, but my answer is uh, it would be consistent, and that is it's everybody's responsibility, but the responsibilities yeah. are different. Yeah. The first problem is that too many people just look to government for this. Mm -hmm. Government on their own aren't going to do this anyway, and they wouldn't have done it anyway. So actually, yeah. if I'm honest, yeah. the leadership has come from civil society. Okay. So the reason Scotland is a leader in climate change is more because of civil society than because of politicians. Yeah. Because they've yeah. driven that. I often think that, you know, the third sector is, is the sort of heart and soul and conscience of a society. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about the third sector is that very few people will tell truth to power. Mm -hmm. They're often quite concerned about saying things in a, in a particular circumstance that could detrimentally affect them or their career or whatever. And it makes it very difficult for them to, to do that. And so, but what you find, and I've found this in my experiences, is when you actually do stick your head above the parapet, although you might personally feel very exposed and you have all the same frailties and uncertainties that anybody might have, Mm. what you suddenly find is these people gather around you just below the parapet, propping you up and feeding <laughs> you really good information. Um, because very few people really want to be the one telling truth to power. It feels uncomfortable. Yeah. But yeah. they're really, really glad that you are. Yeah. And, and they'll um, help. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think civil society is actually where some of the leadership comes from. I think then it comes to government. It falls to government to respond. Mm. Um, they can set legislation and targets, which, of course, in climate change they have, but that isn't enough because you've actually got to deliver against them. So how do you deliver against them? Well, they can deliver some of it, but actually we need the private sector to deliver against that too. And I think that the more enlightened private sector recognises the opportunity around that. It's not just about moral responsibility. There's opportunity in leadership. There's opportunity in growth. There's whole areas of innovation required here and 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 also we need to embed it it's got to end up with people being employed it's got to have jobs at the end of it all mm. it's got to sort of work in society so there's a huge role for business in there to help embed it and sustain it um, yeah. and and help drive some of that innovation but then i think it comes down as well i mean local authorities have a very crucial role 
um, but so do individuals. And I think individuals, it's not, I know, I know we're all sort of fed up with being told to change our light bulbs and things, and, and that's all fine and well and good, but it's, you're, we're all on a journey. Every single one of us is on a journey. Nobody mm -hmm. is doing enough. So whatever you're doing, it's just about being open to, well, what's the next thing? What's the next yeah. thing I could do that would help? Yeah. But one of the most important things that we can all do as individuals is permit change because yeah. I think that one of the things we accidentally naturally do is we resist change. Mm. And, and yet right now, I think more than ever, we need to embrace it. We need to accept that some of the stuff we've been doing doesn't work. Yeah. We now know better. Yeah. So can we just take that on board and sort it out? Yeah. And, <laughs> and so one of the things that I would ask people isn't to change a light bulb, it's to allow change to happen. It's not to resist change. I mean, 10 years ago, we were talking about electric vehicles. Nobody thought that was a realistic proposition. Now we have a deadline of 2032. You won't be able to buy a petrol and diesel car in 2032. Yeah, um, exactly. It is the future of transport. It pretty much always was. If you look back at the models, um, coal has gone from being a safe investment for pension funds to now uninvestable. Yeah, exactly. It sent shockwaves through the investment community. And they're slightly nervous about, well, what's the next coal? Because they just can't believe that transition. Um, and because I'm involved in a lot of this stuff, I think I know some of the answers. So what <laughs> I'm trying to do through the course is help people understand them, you know? Because there's things that I could have told you 10 years ago that if we're moving in the right direction, we'll change. Yeah. And we are moving in the right direction in a lot of these areas. Not as quickly as some of us think we should be, but we're still moving. So, and, and to some extent, what I think we're trying to do through, through the course and through some of what we do is in industry terms is actually develop market prescience. Mm. I like that. That's a positive, a positive outlook and a positive way to see it as well, that actually things are changing, even if they're not as fast as many of us wanted to be, that there is that hunger now, that the growing hunger to actually make change and, and like you said, allow change to happen. Yeah, I think that's true. Yes. So I'd also like to learn about your volunteer positions because there are quite a few of those. <laughs> Probably only got a summary as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few. <laughs> are there any in particular that you'd like to highlight and tell us about? Um, I mean, the most obvious, because it's the biggest of them all, is um, Stop Climate Care Scotland, which is... Mm. An organization I helped set up back in 2006. It was the civil society response to the concerns around climate change. Mm -hmm. um, being a bit mad, I chose to, um, we started with Make Poverty History and I was determined just to grow outwards and make it as big as I possibly could. Um, and we did that. We ended up with over 60 membership organizations and about with, who in turn had about two million members mm -hmm. it included all the environment charities all the humanitarian agencies it included unions community groups student unions um health charities really a very very diverse spectrum of ngo interests mm. um and and included all the churches um yeah we did some really, I mean, we did a huge amount of lobbying. We broke just about every record in the Scottish Parliament. Excellent. Um, <laughs> the consultation, the consultation when it came out on climate change um, back in, I guess it was 2007 or eight, I think 2008, um, 
Prior to that, the biggest consultation in the environment had been 400 letters to the environment minister complaining about docking the, the tails on dogs. Yeah. Um, which I didn't even know was an environmental issue. But, um, but we managed to muster about 24,000 responses wow. to the consultation. Um, so that every time we ran an event at Parliament, we got mm. more MSPs out than they'd ever, they'd ever come out before. Um, we ran marches again. I mean, the marches were the biggest until the school strikes last year. Mm. Um, I mean, they were another scale again. That was yeah. phenomenal. But yeah. we were running marches through Edinburgh and Glasgow um, and ended up with the 2009 Climate Act, which was um, full of interesting stuff, really full of interesting stuff. Mm. Um, there's about 18 amendments. I mean, everybody talks about the headline targets, which don't forget, we thought at the time were, um, were probably difficult to get to, if not impossible, 42% yeah. by 2020. And here we are in 2020, having exceeded the target several years early. Mm. So again, having a target that looks impossible from the outset is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and now we have a new set of targets as of last year, of course, 2019 Act, yeah. um, bringing our net zero, and it was 80% by 2015, it's down to net zero by 2045. So huge step in the right direction. Um, very much a response to the Paris Agreement as it was. Mm. But that, that coalition was just a remarkable thing and it, and it led to the Scottish Climate Justice Fund, which was another world first. Um, again, a very specific request for the humanitarian groups involved in the coalition. But it taught me a huge amount about working in partnership about and, and a really important lesson actually in terms of the the brilliance of some of the people that work in the third sector mm -hmm. um i genuinely thought i'd met three or four people who will be first minister one day mm. um just so politically um sharp so intelligent so creative um and so sort of positive you know nothing there's a Shackleton quote in my room downstairs because of course he, he worked here saying <laughs> obstacles are just things to overcome after all <laughs> and, uh, and I sort of like that because in a way there's there's not time to tell you about all the various obstacles but um, but it became a very very interesting exercise in just problem solving on a massive scale yeah uh, and on the national stage the, the fun bit I'll tell you though, because it is just for a bit of light relief. Please do. Um, <laughs> was um, once we'd got the act through the Parliament, there was a desire to share that example globally because Scotland's obviously quite a small nation. The whole point, well, not the whole point, but part of the point was to inspire others to want to do something similar. Yeah. And so it was really important that we found ways to internationalise it. So we did, of course, do what you'd expect. We we put media releases out through mm. the Oxfam networks internationally and the Catholic Church and all these sorts of bodies. So it did sort of go out globally through those sorts of networks. But yeah. Um, yeah. but we wanted to make a splash and we also wanted to get the message in front of world leaders. Yeah. Because yeah. 2009, this was the summer of 2009, in the October, the G20 met in St Andrews mm -hmm. at the Fairmont St Andrews Hotel. And then in December they all met in Copenhagen for the climate change conference. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge optimism about what that um, 2009 Copenhagen conference might achieve. So we wanted to share the Scottish example in the hope it might inspire somebody else to get involved and other countries to follow suit. And uh, I came up with the idea of producing a 42% proof bottle of whiskey called 2020. <laughs> 
um, since that obviously echoed the target. And um, and I'd been try- I, it was one of these things where I, I was convinced it was a good idea. Yeah. And somebody <laughs> would simply go, oh, what a great idea. Here, here's a load of whiskey. And um, <laughs> it didn't quite work like that, shall we say. And I was speaking at a conference in Glasgow and um, I'd arranged to meet Highland Distillers mm-hmm. uh, at lunchtime uh, during a break in the conference. And I was sat down on a, on a sofa in the reception. These two guys from Highland Distillers were there. And they said, so what exactly are you wanting to do? And I said, well, we know we're on a 42% proof bottle of whiskey called 2020. Um, has to be in, you know, really kosher environmental packaging, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we want to be able to present it to world leaders. And they said, yeah. okay, when, when do you need it for? I said, well, well, October, ideally, for the G20. <laughs> and uh, I, I think this was August or something. And um, they said, okay, okay. And then they made a phone call. And uh, I said, look, I know you're not going to give it to me because I've tried that already. Um, so what's it going to take to make this work? And they said, well, you, you need, we reckon you need 8,000 pounds. So we okay. were going to basically get most of a barrel. Or it was actually not all of a barrel. It was a barrel that had been partly used. Yeah. So it was the rest of a barrel and get that all bottled and everything else. And I needed eight grand. And I said, that's okay. And when do you need it by? When do you need a decision? You know, how, how long have I got to raise it? And they made another phone call and they said, you need it for the October event. I said, yes. They said, well, we need a decision by tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that began the fastest fundraising I've ever done in my life. Um, so it was a funny a funny moment but uh anyway i hadn't even i was looking a bit depressed to be honest when they left because i was like oh my god and the guy that ran the conference um a guy called john summers came up to me and said you're looking a bit down what's going on and i explained the story and he thought it was such a great idea yeah he gave me a thousand pounds before i'd even stood up excellent So, so yeah so by six o'clock that night, I had it. I had all of the money, bar a wee bit. Yeah. And I phoned Highland Distillers up and said, "Okay, you haven't put anything into the pot. So what are you going to do?" <laughs> and at that point, and they said, "Well, actually, we've gone and spoken to our just our bottlers and the label company. Yeah. And they love the idea so much they're 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 offering to do it for nothing. Wow. <laughs> so so I had to still buy the whiskey, but. They, they did all the bottling and all the labelling for nothing. And in the end, it, you know, so I had the whole thing in the bag by six o'clock that night. The next issue was the G20 finance meeting in St Andrews. Because it had world leaders at it and everybody, you couldn't get through the security. Yeah. Nobody could. And we had all this whiskey, brackets, explosive, <laughs> to, um, <laughs> to try to get into the hotel. And of course, you're like, well, how on earth do we do that? Um, <laughs> But this is again the sort of value of coalition and partnerships. Yeah. Is it turned out that WWF um, had corporate supporters, mm. and the Fairmont St Andrews Hotel was a corporate supporter. So the manager came out and met us and took all the whiskey through the security, <laughs> and he cleared the bar of all other whiskey and wow. put a bottle in each of the key delegates' rooms. So we then shipped the rest to Copenhagen and um, handed them out there. And um, so all sorts of world <laughs> leaders have got a bottle of this whiskey celebrating the Scottish example. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah. 
Just a bit of fun. <laughs> that really is out of the box thinking. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. The Institute of Directors is in the heart of all major cities and continues to represent your point of view as a business leader, both locally and nationally. Our objective is to ensure that your views are taken into account when the government is reviewing policy, legislation, or seeking the opinions of the wider business community. If you're interested in joining the IOD, please visit www.iod.com. Also take the opportunity to listen to our other IOD podcast, Policy Voice. To join the conversation and share your thoughts in today's episode, engage with us on Twitter or join the IOD LinkedIn Scotland group. We hope the rest of your week goes well and look forward to sharing another episode with you next week. Bye.